chapter 18, Paul has been in Corinth. Um, he was there for 18 months, a year and a half. Um, started with a remarkable ministry, but then uh, people rose up. They started to accuse him. And again, we talked about the city, what that city was like. It was Las Vegas. It was insanity. But a new governor had come there, Gallio, and we found an inscription, not we, the archaeologists in Delphi that talk about his name and what year it was, what time it is. So significantly, we know then, it says he was there, we know when he was in Corinth, and we, we know then the years that Paul was there, and verse 12 in chapter 18 really helped the scholars to set the rest of the timetable in the book of Acts. Uh, so specific. So Paul is there, and then he is now moving on. Um, and it tells us that Priscilla and Aquila will go with him. So it says, after Paul, now the, the, he's leaving this time, not being forced out, because the Roman governor has put down the revolt against the church and basically said, this is a matter of Jewish interpretation. Jewish religion is illegal here. You can't, you can't do this. Or, and they beat the person that was bringing the accusations against Paul. So Paul no doubt feels like the church is safe there under Roman law. And it says, and after this, tarried, um, he tarried there, Paul, a good while, verse 18, and then took his leave, not forced out, of the brethren and sailed thence into Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila having shorn his head in Centuria. So Paul, we're going to move this evening, we're on the second missionary journey at this point, um, it says that he sails from Centuria. Uh, that's the port. It's nine miles east of the city of Corinth, and it's the main port for Corinth, Centuria. We're told that Phoebe is from Centuria. In Acts, uh, Romans chapter 16, verse 1, she carries the epistle to the Romans into Rome. Um, so Centuria here, Paul sails. He comes over, and it calls this whole area Syria. He comes over first to Ephesus and down here then to Caesarea. So um, he's here. He In Corinth, he goes to Centuria on the coast, sails over again to this area, all kind of recognizes Syria at that point in time, and then down here um, to Caesarea and then to Jerusalem. So... Um, he, he takes his journey again, and he says he's taken a vow. He shaved his head already. You, so the, the head's already shaved. The vow's already been taken. We're not sure what it is. We're going to hear him say he needs to get to Jerusalem. He wants to get there. We have no information at all what it was. You know, uh, there's the Old Testament picture of the Nazarite vow with the shaving of the head and so forth. But this is not that specific. So it's just something in Paul's heart. We're going to hear here he just wants to get to Jerusalem for the feast. Um, that feast was the feast of Passover. 
And by the dates garnered in verse 12 of chapter 18, this would be spring of 53 A.D. Not only that, the sea lanes open on March 10th, 53 A.D. The, the seas were too rough before that. No doubt Paul is striving to get to Jerusalem for the feast, which is the Passover, has to leave then right away as the sea lanes open and head then in that direction. So Aquila and Priscilla go with him. He has shorn his head against that. That's a lumpy, gnarled, beat-up, scarred head. It must be hard to shave. Um, and heads in Centuria, for he had a vow. And he came to Ephesus. Okay, we're heading over here to Ephesus. There's Ephesus, which is the capital of this whole area, which was Asia. There's Ephesus, the sole capital, Asia Minor. Um, and he comes into Ephesus, uh, Temple of Diana, you know, and by the way, she wasn't necessarily worshipped in an immoral way like the temples in Corinth. Uh, but her temple is 425 feet long and 228 foot wide. Had 127 pillars 60 foot high inside holding up the ceiling. And a series of those pillars were made of jade. And uh, as the the Huns actually destroyed it, but those pillars were carried to St. Sophia's in Istanbul, which is a mosque now, a church for centuries. And some of those pillars are still there today. Um, Ephesus, an auditorium, an arena that sat 25,000 people. Uh, they had one of the main libraries in that part of the world with about 250,000 volumes. Those were all written by hand, no printing presses. Uh, remarkable city. And the worship of Diana Artemis, that was the banking center of that part of the world. The Romans considered it the richest center in that part of the world because of all the money, all of the trade and everything. So Paul, at this point, he comes into Ephesus, it says. He came to Ephesus, and then it says he left them. That's Priscilla and Aquila there. But he himself entered into the synagogue, and he reasoned with the Jews, capital of Asia there. And when they desired him to tarry longer with them, he consented not. Isn't that amazing? Everywhere else he's driven out. He's finally got a synagogue, wants him to stick around, and he can't. It's the way it goes, isn't it? When they desired him to tarry longer with them, he consented not, but bade them farewell, those in the synagogue, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem. But I will return again unto you, if God will. And he sailed then from Ephesus. So here he goes then from Ephesus, sailing all the way down here to Caesarea, which was the port, and then overland about 65 miles to Jerusalem. Down from Ephesus, Caesarea, and overland then to Jerusalem. So uh, remarkable covering over well over a thousand miles making this journey 
uh, to get there. He wants to be there for the feast, he says. Um, And he said, but I will return, Lord willing, he said, if God wills, I would love to come back. And he'll do that, by the way. We'll be with him there this evening as he goes back. And when he had landed at Caesarea, this is amazing because a few verses cover a thousand miles. When he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and saluted the church, he went down to Antioch. So he lands at Caesarea, probably talked to some of the Christians that were there. Remember Philip um, and his six daughters that prophesied were there. There's a major part of the church there. Uh, the centurion was saved and those in his house, so he stops at Caesarea, but it doesn't seem like he stays long at all. He had 65 miles to Jerusalem. That's a two- to three-day journey, depending on the roads and so forth, because he wants to get to the Jerusalem for the feast. We're not told why. We're not told what he does. This is not, you know, that we're going to follow him later to Jerusalem when he's going to start a riot. This is completely different than that. It says, when he had landed at Caesarea, now gone up means to Jerusalem. Always in the scripture, you went up to Jerusalem, and when you left Jerusalem, you went down. Even if you live someplace at a higher level than Jerusalem, when you went to Jerusalem, you were going up to Jerusalem. And then when you left, you were going down. Because spiritually, ethically, Jerusalem was higher than any place in the world as far as the Jews were concerned. So... Um, it was 2,500 foot above sea level. It is. It has good elevation. But it just says simply, after he landed at Caesarea and gone up and then saluted the church in Jerusalem, Peter's there. You know, no doubt James is still there, it would seem, at this point in time, the Lord's half-brother. Uh, John, uh, we're not sure at this point. But, you know, the church there, Jerusalem, knows him. He had been there earlier. He had spent time with the apostles. Now the reports are coming in from around the world about what's happening in the Gentile churches. Acts chapter 15, they had the big meeting in Jerusalem, and they bid him, you know, they give him the right hand of fellowship, gave him their blessings, said, go unto the Gentile churches. Now, no doubt, he's coming back. The church in Jerusalem was suffering from hardship at this point in time, Some feel that it's because early on in Acts chapter 2, so expecting the Lord that they had all things in common. They sold their goods, they parted to everybody who had need, and and now time had gone by, a famine had come, a drought, and now the church in Jerusalem, it seems, is suffering hardship. What will happen is Paul's going to collect an offering. He already had some, particularly on the third missionary journey, though. He's going to take that offering from the Gentile churches back to the church at Jerusalem, and God will use it to knit the hearts of the Jews and the Gentiles together in a way it hadn't happened in 2,000 years all through Judaism. So a remarkable picture really develops out of this. It doesn't tell us about the conversation. She just goes up to Jerusalem salutes the church. Did that take two days, three days? Did he stay for the whole feast there? We're not sure. And then he went down again to Antioch. So here's Antioch. He leaves Jerusalem, 
and he goes to Antioch, which is north. But as far as the writer's concerned, he's going down. Goes from Jerusalem then up to Antioch, several hundred miles um, up to the place he started at, Antioch, the, the second missionary journey, and no doubt spends time with the church there. So he goes up to Antioch, 300, about 300 miles. And after he had spent some time there, it doesn't tell us how long specifically, he spent some time there. Now, Silas is not there. Timothy's not there. Luke is not there. It seems that Paul is alone in this at this point. We're not certain. After he had spent some time there, he departed. See that in verse 23? He departed is the third missionary journey. Want to throw that up if we have it? All right, that's the third missionary journey. And we're going to follow him from Antioch, where he is, up through the Cilician Gates again, through this plateau of Galatia, Pisidia and Antioch and so forth, and then over uh, the Apian, the uh, Ignatian Way, the Roman Road to Ephesus, right there. Don't feel left out. Here, here we go. Uh, he's going, he, he went back to Antioch, so here he will leave Antioch and Syria, go through the Cilician Gates, then he'll be up in this area again of Galatia. He'll, no doubt he goes to Derby, Lystra, Iconium, the different churches he started there. Then he goes overland from there to Ephesus. So this is starting to give us a picture of that. It says, uh, when he landed in Caesarea, when up to Jerusalem, came down, then he went to Antioch. And after he had spent some time there, he departed and he went over all the country of Galatia and Phrygia uh, in order to strengthen the disciples. So uh, the church at Lystra, Derby, Iconium, all of those things, we follow him on the second missionary journey. And by the way, you know, nobody texted ahead. Nobody sent a, a you know, uh, there was no communication, no mobile devices. Nobody sent an email or a fax. Paul, imagine Paul just showing up one day at these churches that had no doubt loved him. You know, there at Lister, they had stoned him, probably dead at that point. Second Corinthians seems to indicate that. Back to life again. You, just around, Timothy's family, his, his uh, grandmother and his mother's there in Lister as he comes there. So you can imagine him just showing up at these churches. They had no, didn't know he was coming. And he goes from church to church. Well, the good thing about nobody knows he's coming, then nobody can tell the bad guys either. But, you know, he, then he goes from church to church, encouraging them and strengthening all the disciples. Now, verse 24. And a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came... To Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent, the Greek word is boiling over, being fervent in spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John, which is a baptism to repentance. He knew that much. 
And it says he taught diligently acrobos. We get acrobat from that, walking on the high wire. He, he, he did it diligently, acrobos, with tax, tack, no, no doubt. So Apollonia, probably his real name uh, here, he's called Apollo, Apollos. He's born in Alexandria. Alexandria is the second largest city in the Roman Empire. Only Rome is larger. Population of over a half a million. Um, established by Alexander the Great. And then, uh, Alexandria. And then um, 200 and some years, 225 years before Christ, the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, the most widely dispersed and used translation of the Old Testament uh, in existence to the time of Christ, um, was translated there by 70 scholars, 71 actually, but 70 scholars from Hebrew to Greek because that was becoming the language of the, the business world of the world and so many couldn't read Hebrew. So these scholars translated, now that was 200 years before Christ. In Alexandria. Alexandria, the city is broken into five different parts, and two of those parts are completely Jews. They they were recognized there, safe most of the time. Twice there were pretty big uprisings by the Egyptians who were trying to kill Jews, but the Romans were ruling. It was put down right away. But no doubt when Mary and Joseph take Jesus down to Egypt, they take him into that area where the Jewish settlements are, in Alexandria. Uh, Alexandria had a library of 700,000 volumes. That's all written by hand. 700,000 volumes. The, uh, the, the light tower there in the harbor, uh, the lighthouse, 326 foot tall, and uh, it was called one of the seven wonders of the world. So Alexandria, this metropolis, the second largest city, the Roman Empire, the exports of grain and so forth left there daily to go to the Roman, uh, the city of Rome and to Italy. Grain trade was going back and forth. Those would be the ships again Paul would sail on. So this young Jewish man comes from Alexandria, Seems he's a believer because he's going into the synagogue arguing with the Jews. He's skillful. He's a scholar. Um, there are those who feel that Apollos wrote the book of Hebrews. Possibly. Not my opinion, but possibly. Um, and he's schooled, no doubt. Great university there, great Jewish centers. And somehow he's at least involved with John the Baptist, who pointed the way to Christ. He's familiar with the baptism of repentance. He goes into the synagogues arguing, you know, instructed in the way of the Lord, it tells us here. Uh, so he knows about Christ, fervent in spirit. He taught diligently the things of the Lord, Jesus knowing only, though, the baptism of John, which was the baptism of repentance. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom, when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, when they heard him, they took him unto them 
And they expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. So you can imagine, you know, here he is preaching in the synagogue. You know, he's impressive. Everybody's like stunned by this guy. He's GQ, okay? You know, he, he's probably tall. He's he's brilliant. Uh, nobody can handle him amongst the Jews and all. But Aquila and Priscilla are listening. No doubt they're excited. But they invite him over to their house. And they talk to him privately. This is the way to do it. They don't raise their hand in the synagogue and say, excuse me. Uh, I know you got the, all the degrees and their PhDs and all, but you're wrong about this. They don't, they don't do that. They invite him over. They break bread with him. They sit there and they talk to him. And the remarkable thing is that Apollos is teachable with all of his credentials and all of his brains. The wife of a tent maker is taking, teaching him more than any of the scholars in Alexandria. As he sits there, no doubt he was drinking it in as they were explaining the way of the Lord more completely to him. And you can imagine the questions that he asked. No doubt he heard about Paul when he was there and they spoke about the missionary work that was taking place. They heard about what had happened in Corinth. In fact, he determines to go to Achaia. Uh, here's Achaia here. He, he determines he's going to go there and uh, the southern part. Here's Corinth. This whole part is a KI. So he decides he's going to go there after his time with Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, and he's teachable. They were able to expound unto him the way of God more perfectly. And when he was disposed to pass into a KI, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him, who, when he was come, helped them much, which had believed through grace. For he mightily convinced the Jews, and that publicly, showing by the scriptures, Old Testament, that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. So he comes into a K.I., you know, the capital area, Corinth, He's mighty as he's, as he's talking to them. He's, he's bringing to bear a knowledge of the scripture no doubt they lacked. And he's proving from the Old Testament that, in fact, Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Um, very interesting, again, if you read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it's like verses 13 to 15, when Paul writes there, he said, I hear you're divided. Some say I'm of Apollos. Some say I'm of Paul. Some say I'm of Cephas. He says, is Christ divided? You know, this is, aren't we all one? Then in chapter 3, he says, look, you know, Apollos, you know, I planted, Apollos watered. One man plants, another man waters, but only God brings the increase. And the thing we find out in the Corinthian letter is the Corinthians are saying, yeah, you know, Apollos is the one, you know, Paul's kind of little, he's gnarly, he's got that beak nose and all those gouges on his head. You know, historians tell us he was, he was notable for being short, that he's weak, he's sickly, he's going to change in the world. Imagine if he'd have been in Apollos' body and had an airplane, what he'd have done. But, uh, but isn't it interesting, it's the same today, you put somebody on a stage that looks like a star. 
you know, preachers with sneakers. Guy's got $3,000 sneakers and a Rolex watch and a cool shirt. And, 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 and somebody's going to listen to him rather than listen to an old saint who's got a hold of the scripture who can speak so clearly. That's just the church is still as carnal now as it was then. Paul, part of Corinth's going to say, nah, Apollos is my guy, because Paul's funky. He's little, he's gnarly, he looks weird, but Apollos, yeah, you could put him on GQ magazine. That's the guy I'm going to, you know. Isn't it interesting when you read through Corinthians to see how that area received Paul versus how they received Apollos? But he's not part of that. That's not in his heart, that's not what he wants. It says, for he mightily convinced the Jews, and that publicly, showing by the scripture that Jesus was Messiah. And it came to pass that when Apollos was at Corinth, so he went, as he said, to Achaia, he's at Corinth, Paul having passed through the upper coast, now we saw that, Paul comes up this way, and these are the upper coasts here, all these churches he visited. And it's going to say he comes to Ephesus. He passed through these upper coasts, comes over here to the sea, to Ephesus. When Paul had passed through the upper coasts, he came to Ephesus. And finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have ye received the Holy Ghost? since you believed. And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there was any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Well then, unto what were you baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. And and then Paul said, Well, John truly, because that was their impression, baptized with the baptism of repentance. So these Ephesians were baptized as Apollos with the baptism of repentance. They understood that. Paul said, John verily, truly did baptize with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ. Now, Paul gets there and he runs into these believers, it says there. And they're called disciples. So there's a question here in an argument. Are these believers, these disciples, or are they not believers? Verse 2, his question, he said unto them, Have ye received the Holy Ghost? King James says, Since you believed. Um, You may have a translation that says, When you believe. And there's two camps that that camp there and debate with each other because if it if it says in the text did you re- have you received the holy spirit since you believed then it makes them believers that have not yet been baptized or received the fullness of the spirit if paul is saying to them did you receive the spirit when you believed that's the experience of being baptized in the mystical body of christ by the holy spirit one baptism one spirit and so forth <clears throat> so there's, they take two sides to argue about that, and then they'll argue about the aorist tense and the participle. And all the, you can you can get headaches. Take your Excedrin if you want to read about this. Um, here's just some things for us to think about. So you'll hear my opinion. Obviously, he he found there at Ephesus certain believers. 
that word is used 29 times in the book of Acts, believers. Every single other time it speaks of believers, disciples. There's nowhere where that word is used that it doesn't speak of believers. So only someone who's a cessationist who didn't, doesn't believe in the baptism of the Spirit would want to argue and say this word, they're not really disciples. It's not, they're not believers. That's hard to, hard to embrace for me personally. Have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed or maybe when you believed in your translation? So he said, it says they believed. That's why they're called believers. And they said unto him, well, we, we, don't, we haven't even heard whether there's a Holy Ghost. That's why he's asking, because Jesus said in Matthew 28, verse 19, and you go baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. They've been baptized into John's baptism, which is a baptism of repentance, which is certainly part of our Christian experience. But them saying, well, we don't know if there's a Holy Spirit. Now, they don't have to know if there's a Holy Spirit to be in the mystical body of Christ. When you and I got saved, we didn't say, Lord, please, would you baptize me into the mystical body of Christ? I just feel outside of that. No, we came and said, I'm a jerk. I'm a sinner. I don't want to go to hell. I'm tired. I can't do it anymore. Please forgive me. And at that moment, you were placed into the mystical body of Christ, baptized by the Spirit, which is different than being baptized with the Spirit. And of course, people don't like to hear that, but they do want to argue over when and since. (laughs) But they don't want to hear baptized by the Spirit and baptized with the Spirit are two different things. So here, now that argument will become mute as we go down here anyway, but understand this. In Acts chapter 1 and 2, the disciples in the upper room, they're believers. The disciples have been with Christ for 40 days after his resurrection, talking about the things of the kingdom. And he tells them, wait in Jerusalem till you're endued with power, till the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Not in you, E-N, but a P, comes upon you. Then they're gathered there, and the Holy Spirit falls on them. They're already believers. And it says that they're then, that when the Spirit comes upon them, they speak in other tongues and so forth on the day of Pentecost and so forth. So they're Spirit-filled. Interesting, it tells us when Peter led 3,000 to the Lord in Acts chapter 2, it doesn't say any of them have spoken tongues. We don't know, but you can imagine 3,000 Pentecostals all at one time jabbering in tongues would have been crazy. So we don't hear about, at least about a manifestation there. Possibly there was. We hear another time in the book of Acts, 5,000 turn. We don't hear there. There possibly were. There were manifestations. We do hear in chapter 4, Peter stands before the Sanhedrin, the council, and it says Peter was filled, class condition, a fresh new filling. So here's a guy who was filled on Pentecost, and he's refilled. You love free refills. That's our experience. You know, a a spirit-filled Christian is not a title, it's a condition. And we should be asking God to fill us with the Spirit every day. Paul's going to say to the Ephesians, don't be drunk with wine where it is in excess, but be ye being filled with the Holy Spirit. Those are the tenses there. Be ye being continually filled with the Holy Spirit. 
and and it's passive there. You you're you're to be open to it, but it's God that does the filling. That's to the church in Ephesus that he writes that. So you have in chapter 4 of Acts, verse 31, it says the disciples are gathered together. They begin to pray and ask the Lord to grant them boldness to speak the word. And it says the place they were gathered begins to rumble and shake, and they were all filled, class condition, with a fresh new filling. These were already spirit-filled Christians that received a fresh new filling. You have Acts chapter 8, when the Samaritans received the gospel... And it says specifically there, they're believers. And Philip's doing miracles. These are believers. The woman at the well had no doubt been part of planning that church. It said, remember on our Sunday morning study, the whole town of Samaria came out and said, we know now you're the savior of the world, not of the Jews. Only in Samaria, the savior of the world. Only time in John's gospel, the phrase is used. So no doubt... The spirit moving in Samaria, the church is, is growing. They're being they're disciples. They're being, so the church in Jerusalem sends up Peter and John. John said, oh, I, Peter and I will go. We know somewhere we can stay. This great gal up there. You know, we, and uh, probably every time they got there, she said to the man, I'm glad the Lord didn't listen to you guys and burn up Samaria. Uh, but it says then that Peter and John laid hands on them and prayed for them. And it says at that point, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues. Another type of Pentecost there. There's a genuine experience. Uh, In the house of Cornelius, they're saved and filled simultaneously at the same time. Uh, In Acts chapter 8, they're already saved, they're disciples, and then as... Peter and, and, and John come, they lay hands on them, then they receive the fullness of the Spirit, the Spirit comes upon them. So this isn't an unusual circumstance in the book of Acts. Here it calls these folks in Ephesus believers. The 28 other times in the book of Acts, that means believers. It's hard for me to say here it doesn't mean believers. He says, did you receive the Holy Ghost? You can say it's since, you can say it's when, because that becomes a mute argument as we work our way down. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And that should be something we should know. And they said unto him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Now, you know, it's interesting because Jesus, this is Ephesus, Jesus said on the great day of Feast, come to me and drink and out of your most being shall flow rivers of living waters. John said, this spake he of the spirit which was not yet given. In Luke, Jesus is teaching the disciples to pray and he says, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So it says there, he's our father, we're his children. That has to be talking about believers who asked the Father for the Holy Spirit, and how much more will he give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Again, when you get saved, that's not what you're asking for. So here, they say, we haven't heard about the Holy Ghost. Paul says, what do you mean? Were you baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? How are you about? Well, we were baptized into John's baptism. Paul says, understood. He said, John's baptism truly is a baptism under repentance. And that's that's a good thing, he says. But he says, 
to the people that they should believe on him. John was saying the re when he baptized, he was saying, you need to believe on him who will come after me, whose sandals I'm not worthy to unloose and so forth. When they heard this, it says, then they were baptized. Now, they're believers at this point. We all agree about that, right? Paul does not baptize unbelievers. We, we all, everybody here, same page? Okay. So in verse 5, they're believers. Now, they're believers before they're baptized. You don't become a believer when you get baptized. You baptize believers. They're not christening babies. You repent and be baptized, the New Testament teaches. So in verse 5, when we read that, there are believers now. Whether you want to say, I think they were believers already, because I, I think some of the manuscript evidence is for since, some of it is for when. I don't have an ax to grind there, because I grind mine in verse 5 and 6. It says, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So we know they are believers there. They're saved. Then it says, and when Paul laid his hands upon them, no one saved anywhere in the New Testament by getting hands laid on them. Nowhere. Um, when Paul hand, laid his hands on them, is that as they're coming out of the water? I doubt it. Is that, does everybody get home and take a shower and put on dry clothes and come back to the meeting? Is that an hour later? You know, is that is that a half hour later? The point is, it's subsequent to their salvation. They were first saved, and then Paul baptizes them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it says after he does that, subsequent to that, he lays hands on them, and the Holy Ghost came, here it is, upon, not in, came on, a P, came upon them, and they spake with tongues, and they prophesied. Remarkable picture here. Um, and all the men, says here, were about 12. There's about 12 men that he had taken through this process here that he had fellowship with. This is the beginning of the church proper in Ephesus. Uh, this is a church that will grow. Uh, Paul will hand the reins at some point to Timothy. Uh, it becomes a huge church. We're going to see that as we move on here. Timothy will be martyred there, and evidently John the Apostle will take that church for about 30 years before he goes to Patmos. And it's very interesting there, as the Lord is writing, and he writes the letter to the church of Ephesus. That was his church. And John has to challenge his own church about losing their first love. And I think, what a heartbreak, you know. Here's the one who leaned on the Lord's breast, who loved the Lord with all of his heart. When he writes the letter to the church of Ephesus, he's writing to the church that he had pastored for several decades. So this small group becomes the seedbed for one of the most remarkable churches in the world that's affected all of us, no doubt. It says, and then he went, Paul, into the synagogue... And he spake boldly for the sp space of three months, disputing, arguing, and then persuading, you know what persuading means, things concerning the kingdom of God. He went, he debated with them, he challenged them, he brings them. And, and look, these, this is a synagogue that said, come back. 
Don't leave. Stay with us. So when he comes back, it says he's being bold. He's challenging them. He's disputing and he's persuading in regards to the things of the kingdom. And when diverse, certain of them were hardened. And it says, and they believed not. We're told up verse 2 that these Ephesian disciples had believed. It says, but they believed not, but spake evil of, now, that way before the multitudes. He departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of Tyrannus. So um, they, he separated them. They spoke evil of the way. They're, they were speaking blasphemous about Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Paul, you know, is presenting Christ as the way. It says they spoke evil. They're blaspheming Jesus himself, and no doubt particularly the crucifixion and resurrection. So hardness develops here as we look at this. And then it says then Paul at that point, you know, that's when he doesn't want to deal with it anymore. He's willing to argue out of the Old Testament. He's willing to talk about Moses. He's willing to talk about Zechariah and Psalm 22 and go back and forth. But once they start to blaspheme the name of Jesus, he pulls out because he's got other disciples, young disciples. And it says, but they spoke evil of the way before the multitude. So there's a lot of them gathered. And then he departed from them. He separated the disciples, the believing Jews and Gentiles, took them out of that crowd. And he was disputing daily in the school of Tyrannus. Now, Tyrannus means tyrant. So I have the suspicion that the students gave the school the name School of the Tyrant, whoever their teacher was there. I had a few of those when I went through school. Um, he's disputing daily there. Now, um, Paul, when he, when he speaks to the Ephesians, he said, you know when I came, I laid no burden on you. I supported myself. He says it in chapter 20 as he's meeting at Miletus with the Ephesian elders. It's the last time he sees them. He says, I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Yea, ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my own necessities and to them that were with me. So Paul says to the Ephesians, look, I was tent making. I came there and I worked. And evidently, um, he did that early in the morning. One of the early church fathers, and it's, one of, it's a side note, one of the manuscripts said he was in the school of Tyrannus six days a week from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m., five hours a day. He taught five hours a day in the school of Tyrannus for three years. That's 3,120 hours of instruction from Paul the Apostle. Imagine sitting under Paul's ministry for 3,120 hours, what they heard. And, and, and I'm sure he talked about Jerusalem and the apostles. He, Christ had appeared to him on the road to Damascus. Besides being an expert in the Old Testament, and you know, Pharisee of the Pharisees and so forth, that he brings in the school of Tyrannus, it says he was daily in the school every afternoon of one Tyrannus. And no doubt 
Aquila and Priscilla may have helped if there was Randall involved in this. He was working still in the mornings, it seems. And this continued by the space of two years so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So everybody in Asia, because he set up there and because he taught the scripture day after day, for three years, it says about two years in this book. We're going to find out this whole stays about three years. So everybody in Asia hears. So you have Ephesus, here's Asia. Uh, you've got in this area, Philadelphia, uh, Laodicea, Pergamos, Thyatira, Smyrna, Sardis, Ephesus. All the seven churches in the book of Revelation are all in this area around Ephesus. And it tells us there that the word of God went out and affected that whole area. And it's because Paul is teaching there every day for over two years. And it says, look in verse 11, it says, it says, and God brought special miracles, not the regular old miracles, special miracles, and God wrought there is in the imperfect tense. It had the idea is it was ongoing. Did it go on for the whole two years? It continued to go on. God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul. They were Paul's hands. They were God's miracles. So that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs and aprons, and diseases departed from them, and evil spirits went out of them. So we have this interesting picture. Dr. Luke kind of gives us this description. It says, God wrought special miracles, continually was doing special miracles. By the hands of Paul, Paul was the vessel, God was the, the source. And that from his body, the, the Greek word is, Dr. Luke uses the word there is from his skin, from his skin were brought unto the sick headbands is head handkerchiefs is is headbands sweatbands from he'd work in the work in the shop in the morning making tents got all sweaty and worked up then he'd go to the school of Tyrannus and people would sneak into the tent making shop and, and steal his aprons and his ball now oh, they're gone again are you kidding me you know what kind of Christians would steal your gear at work all the time it's, it says they went and they took these claws that were against his skin. They brought them to the sick then, handkerchiefs, sweatbands, or aprons, the thing he wore around his wet waist. And diseases, it says, departed from them. And evil spirits came out of them. So this remarkable picture, Dr. Luke, no doubt, is amazed. There's no therapy involved. There's no rehabs. There's no, you've been crippled your whole life. You don't have to go to rehab. And, you know, immediately, obviously, as when God ever does miracles, there's immediately neuropathways and tendons and ligaments and muscle that wasn't there, just these remarkable things. And it says even his sweatbands and his aprons brought in the context of anybody that was demon-possessed, the demons couldn't take it. It wasn't because they were sweatpants, but demons couldn't take it. They, they fled, they left. 
and it's, that's going to lead us into the seven sons of Sceva next Wednesday, if the Lord tarries, and this demon-possessed person. Uh, but understand, Ephesus, again, the Temple of Diana, again, one of the seven wonders of the world, one of the ancient historians in that day said, I've seen the, the uh, pyramids in Giza. I've seen, you know, he goes through the Colossus of Rhodes. I've seen all of these things. He said, you haven't seen anything till you've seen the temple of Artemis, the temple of Diana in Ephesus. But idolatry was a central part of life in Ephesus. They would bring the things from their magical arts and burn them, the books and so forth. So this is an idea, this is an area where demon possession is not uncommon. So because the whole city's involved in idolatry, satanic worship and deception, then not only are people being healed of their physical illnesses, their physical wounds and, you know, and so forth, whatever they might be, but those that are demon-possessed, it says they're bringing sweatbands from Paul and the demons are leaving. No wonder the word is spreading. I mean, were they taking sweatbands, you know, all the way to the church of Philadelphia, to the church at Laodicea, where they spread, you know, you, you, could, you could just see how the word is being taught, miracles are happening, and God's doing that to bear witness of the word that's being taught. Again, sad today in so much of the church, particularly the Pentecostal side, where they use, you know, they want to use the word to bear witness of the miracles, to make excuses for their behavior. In the book of Acts, it's always the miracles that bear witness of the word that was being preached. And that's the way it should be. So we, we end up in this remarkable city. Next week, we'll take more of a look of the, the complexity of it, the city itself, how long he was there, the things he encountered uh, maybe a little bit of the growth in that city after Paul would move on from there. Read ahead through the rest of chapter 19. This evening, uh, some takeaways. I would say, look, you know, never fall for the GQ pastor. Uh, look, we see some of that, you know, uh, because of media now. Um, If somebody's notoriety grows faster than their character, they get top-heavy and they fall. We see it over and over. They're going to fall. When their fame outgrows their personal character development of the Lord, they go down. Um, listen. Don't listen with your eyes. Listen with your ears. You're looking at other Christians, you can make sure that you, you can be a fruit inspector and make sure there's fruit, but don't be judgmental. That's not the issue. I would say that. Secondly, great time. Look, if you need a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit, I, I pray when we sing this last song that you stand up and in your own heart say, Lord, I'm dry. I know it. My wife knows it. My kids know it. I'm dry. I need a fresh filling of your spirit. Peter was filled, and Peter was filled, and Peter was filled again. These disciples here, I believe believers, but the Holy Spirit hadn't come upon them in a meaningful way that was recognizable. And when you're indwelled with the Spirit, that part of your faith, not your new birth, 
But when the Spirit comes, we should know that. That should be something we should realize. It should be something we, we should know. It would be something, you know, that other people see it as the love of Christ shed abroad from our hearts. There should be power. You know, interesting, he says to the church at Ephesus, you have a little power. He criticized all the other churches. He doesn't criticize that church. He doesn't criticize Smyrna. But he said, the, the Greek is, you actually have a little power. Like, that's amazing. You've kept my word. You've not denied my name. And uh, because you've kept the word of my passion, I'm going to keep you from the hour that's coming to try all of those who live on the face of the entire earth. Aren't we looking forward to that? Just five of us. That's good. <laughs> As your faith is, so be it unto you, I guess. You know, we're looking. Christ could come in any second. He could come at any moment. Between now and when he comes, I don't want to do that in the energy of my flesh. I want a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. If you don't pray for your pastor, if you don't want a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit because you think you're filled enough, we'll ask your wife about that, but if you think you're filled enough, then pray for me. You don't need it. I need it. Pray for me. Pray for me. And I want to be in a spirit-filled environment. If every joint and every ligament supply, and if the body's supposed to build itself up in love, we're never going to do that in the flesh. We're never going to do it in the flesh. So we'll have the musicians come. If you don't know Christ, by the way, just get up here after the service. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to see you ask Christ for forgiveness and be saved. You think, well, I'm a believer? Well, then let us tell you more perfectly, like Apollos, like those that, you know, we'd love to give you a copy of the scripture. love to see you do that this evening before you leave. But um, let's do this. Let's stand. Let's worship. I encourage you as we worship just to be asking the Lord, Lord, fill me fresh with your spirit. Renew me. Let me have, you know, gas is getting more expensive it costs more to fill up that tank, but it don't cost you nothing to fill up this tank because it's through the blood of Christ. And we're not going to get the mileage out of these old frames we need to in these last days without a full tank, without being filled with the Spirit. So, Father, I know you've overheard. We thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for these things. Thank you for the, Lord, the, the pictures, the descriptions. Lord, thank you for the detail. Thank you that your word rises off the page, that it's alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Thank you, Lord, that it sanctifies, that it accomplishes, that it's effectual. Let it be that way in our lives more than ever, Lord, in these days. And we pray this evening as we lift our voices in praise, Lord, that we be lifting our hearts as well. Lord, you do talk about those who draw near you with their lips, but their hearts are far away. Lord, let us be vastly different from that, Lord. Let our hearts and our lips be in concert, Lord. Let the song that we lift to you now, Lord, let it be a, a prayer of, the, of all of us here gathered together, Lord. Let us all be in agreement, Lord. And we look to you, Lord Jesus, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.